Welcome to Harvest Mission Community Church. You are listening to one of our sermons. One thing that I want us to remember today is that God redeems your family as he redeems you into his family. God redeems your family as he redeems you into his family. I want to give us a huddle group time right now. So hopefully, if you're not already in your Zoom, hopefully you've woken up by now, just to have some quick discussion and just share these two questions. The first one is, why do you think family and someone's upbringing has such a strong impact on people? Why do you think family and someone's upbringing has such a strong impact on people? And the second question is, what is something in your family's past that has shaped you positively or negatively? I'm not just talking about like a random instance, but something very formative that has shaped you to who you are today. So I'll just give you about six minutes or so, and then after the huddle group time, we'll come back and uh, read the passage. All right, let's come back, and hopefully you had a good huddle group time. I want to encourage us, we'll have one more later on in the message, but this is going to be a really good time just to go deeper and share a little bit more vulnerably about just different things that have happened. And as we share and as we uh, bring that to the light, I really believe God is going to heal some of those experiences and allow us to experience the gospel in a tangible way. Uh, as we talked about how God redeems your family as he redeems you into his family, there are a few things that as we look in this passage and tease out some of the principles, we see that there are a few things that we have to know if we are to believe that God is going to help us experience this transformation. The first is that your family is every family. Your family is every family. Let's look into Genesis 32. Hopefully you've turned to it by now and read verses 1 through 5. Uh, it says, And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sarah, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, This says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And in the, these first five verses, we see Jacob, what he's doing is he's going home. He's on the way home. Previously, a while back, what he did was he ran away from home. His mother sent him away because of some conflict that he had with his family, and he labored for his for his extended family for a number of years. He got married, had, uh, had uh, wives. And then now, after some time, God is sending him back to say, go home, go back to your land, go back to your family. And so Jacob is now on the way home. And on the way home, what we notice is that Jacob, his focus on one person in particular. It's really interesting. When you go home, there are a lot of things that trigger in someone's mind. A lot of things that could possibly be someone's thought process, but for Jacob, it was 100% Esau. It's 100% Esau. That's a little bit interesting that there's no mention of Isaac, which is his father. There's no mention of Rebecca, who's his mother. He's not looking forward to seeing them. He's purely focused on Esau, and we notice that there's a little bit of tension or fear in the way that he approaches home. Going home is a trigger for Jacob. It's a trigger that reminds him of all the past conflicts that he had. And I don't know how many of us, we have different things that going home might remind us of. For Jacob, it reminded him of all the ways that he really messed up back then. 
In Genesis 27, 35 to 36, it shows us what happened back then that Jacob was probably remembering. In verse 35, it says, But Isaac, Isaac is his father, said, and he's speaking, Isaac, his father, speaking to Esau after Jacob stole something from his brother. He says, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Talk about conflict. Talk about uh, uh, something that you wanted to run away from family from and that you never want to go back. And now here, Jacob is commanded by God to go home. And now this is what he has to face. And of course, as he goes home, because these things have not been resolved, that's the first thing that he probably thinks about. The question is, why? Why did these things happen? Why are some of these things that have not been resolved in their lives so difficult to process? Why is it that some of the things that we go back home to family with are constantly things that keep going up? keep coming back up and over and over and over again. The Bible gives us some wisdom and it shows us the whole redemptive history and how God is constantly working on this issue of family. We get a little bit of insight because those reading the story of Genesis would have read chapters before this and known what happened in Jacob's past. In Genesis 25, 28, we get a little glimpse of that in this story, in verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. We see there was some family favoritism going on. The father favored Esau, the firstborn, while the mother favored Jacob for various reasons. And realize, it's not just one, this, this one isolated experience. Why did they favor them? Why was there so much conflict? Why were there sibling rivalries? Because your family and Jacob's family is like every other family before them. Your family is like every family before you. And there's a pattern that we begin to see that exists not only in Jacob's family, but in all of our families. Here on the screen, you'll see a, a family tree of Abraham. And you'll notice Jacob and Esau are right in the middle right there. And you'll notice that little slanted line means cut off, was because Esau was cut off, cut off by Jacob's deceit, cut off by the lack of blessing, but that wasn't the only the first time there were sibling rivalries. You notice right above that, there was whom? Isaac. Isaac was the father of Esau and Jacob. And who was cut off as a sibling there? It was Ishmael. It was Ishmael because there was tension between Hagar and Sarah, who were the grandparents of Jacob, and Ishmael was cut off and cast away. We see that after Jacob, then his children, what happened? There was sibling rivalry and tension. Joseph was cut off by his brothers. And many of us, we know that story. And we start to see there's this pattern that's happening. And it doesn't exist only within this family. Who are the original brothers who were cut off? Well, it was Cain and Abel. Cain killed Abel out of jealousy, out of that lack of forgiveness. And we begin to see in this Bible, there's this pattern that reveals this time. It reveals itself over and over and over again. It's not just sibling rivalry, but there's also parental issues where the parents are hiding. They're not loving. They're loving one more than the other, and it constantly complicates the relationship, and there's infighting and tension and brokenness. 
And what seems like a small thing, all of a sudden becomes something so much bigger. What seems like a small thing, like taking a birthright, eating some stew, becomes something so much bigger. And many of us, especially with regards to our families and some of the triggers that come up when we think about going home, we're just like, oh yeah, just don't worry about it. Let's just get over with it. Let me just endure this Chinese New Year because this auntie or my parents or whatever. Let me just endure it because, man, I can just go back to the rest of my life and be okay. And we just put these band-aids on these issues when we don't realize that there's something deeper. There's a pattern in our family history that's being revealed. And typically we respond in a way that we don't realize is going to repeat the very same thing. There's a saying that we, uh, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Those of us, we do not learn our family history. We are doomed to repeat the same thing. The generational pattern that was placed in our parents and our grandparents is doomed to repeat itself in our, in our family line and with our children as well. I, uh, I, I remember growing up in high school and in college, I swore to myself, I said, I will never, ever be like my dad. I will never, ever be like my dad. I will never wear free t-shirts. <laughs> but I, one thing I said, one thing that I was really, really just affected by was just the emotional or lack of emotion in my family upbringing. I think something that I really hated over and over again was because all of the dinner table conversation, everything that we talked about was purely about what did you accomplish, what grades did you get, what internships did you get, how did you do in your extracurriculars, what does your college resume look like? And I think that really impacted me in a way that I said, you know, no matter what I do in the future, I will be emotionally present for my children. And lo and behold, I, I uh, graduated. I started uh, getting involved in life group ministry. I became Christian. And then I started, uh, you know, having my own life group family. And something that we always say in our church is the way you lead life group is the way that you're going to lead your family, is the way that you're going to be a parent. I never, I was like, yeah, whatever, Pastor said. that's, Whatever, that's your own thing. But lo and behold, there was this one time in a life group, and I won't tell you which one it is. There was a life group where there was this brother who came and we met up, and I was you know, trying to disciple him and encourage him and challenge him. And one day he just honestly confessed and almost confronted me. He said, hey, like, Bo, and I wasn't a pastor back then. He said, hey, Bo, like, I just, I know you're trying to help us, but one thing I just feel like you never do is you never affirm us. You never speak words of encouragement. You're never emotionally, you never share with us like how you're doing or how you're feeling. And as soon as he said that, I, I just felt like the sword just like go through my heart. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's exactly how I felt with my dad. That's exactly the same thing that I vowed that I would never do with my kids, with, with people that are around me. And I, here I am doing the very same thing. And it didn't stop there. It wasn't like that. Immediately everything changed and my life was redeemed. I, even as I'm married now, like as I've shared before, one of the biggest conflicts that I have with my wife is just being emotionally present, just sharing uh, what, where I'm going, how, how I'm doing, what I'm feeling in that moment. And, and I just, and I, I realize, I realize it comes from somewhere before me. And I, I realize maybe there's something about the way that my dad was raised. Maybe there's something about the way that my mom was raised and their grandparents and their grandparents that caused them to not be able to share with me the way that I wanted them to share with me. And now I'm passing that down onto my kids. And for me, I realized that's my trigger, that emotional or lack of emotion, that's, 
or lack of trigger. That's something that triggers me when someone expects me to be emotionally present or emotionally intelligent. And if I don't process that with this lens of being emotionally intelligent, but also realizing there are patterns in my life, then I realize I'm doomed to repeat the same thing over and over again. If I don't realize that my family is every family before me, that your family is every family before yours, that you will be doomed to repeat the same thing over and over. You will wear free t-shirts for the rest of your life in the proverbial sense. Do you know what things that your parents have passed down onto you? Do you know why every time someone talks about finances, you get triggered? Do you know why every, so, every time someone criticizes you or gives you feedback, even though it's very neutral, you get triggered? Do you know why any time anyone talks about relationships or lack of relationships, you get triggered? Have you ever wondered that it might be from something back in your family line that you just have not uncovered quite yet? Something that I really believe as I've just grown as a Christian is I really believe that God wants us to be generational breakers. He wants us to claim the promises of God, trusting in him and saying, I will not let this earthly family define me and who I am and the choices that I make. There's so many passages in Scripture saying the old has gone, the new has come, that gives us this promise to say since Adam, since the fall, since the original family was broken, God is in this process to redeem and to heal. And I think one of the ways that he does that is to help us to realize that your family is every family before you. If you're unaware of that, and we need to realize that and see that in our lives. We have to not only realize your family is every family, but we have to realize that your family is also your family. Your family is your family. You're like, huh, what does that mean? Don't worry, we'll get there. Let's just read 6 through 8. In this passage, verse 6, it says, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and herds and camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. How we treat our family when we get triggered shows whether or not we will see or we see our family as our family or you see your family as your family. What do I mean by this? I mean, unless you take responsibility for your actions, for the things that you have done, for the ways that you have interpreted the things that have gone on in your family background, you will never be able to experience the transformation and redemption that God has. Unless you experience that redemption, unless you take responsibility, unless you are able to forgive, then you are doomed to repeat that cycle. We see this happens in Jacob's life. Jacob gets triggered. I mean, think about it. Anyone would probably get triggered. If he goes home, there's all of this stuff that was unresolved, and then all of a sudden he sends a messenger to his brother, and then the messenger comes back and says, hey, Esau's coming back, and there's 400 men with him. And I think it's really interesting that the author doesn't give any other details other than just 400 men are coming with him. He doesn't say, like, Esau's so happy to see you, and he's, like, having a big family reunion. He doesn't say, like, they come with swords and knives because he wants to kill you. He doesn't say that. And I think it's almost intentional to help us to discover or to see how Jacob responds is really telling of whether or not he takes responsibility in this moment. What is Jacob's response? How does he respond? I'm not going to read the 
the whole rest of those sections in verse 7 all the way to 20 and 30. But how does he respond? I'm going to summarize this. In verses 7 to 8, it's a fight-or-flight response. It's a fight-or-flight response. What does he do? He, he breaks his whole family into two camps. He says, hey, if one gets attacked, then at least the other one can run away. And he treats Esau like an enemy. He's assuming that Esau is his enemy. What's the second thing he does? He calls upon God to deliver him, verses 9 to 12. He, he prays his prayer, and I think the prayer in itself is commendable. There's nothing wrong with praying that prayer. But if you notice some of the language, what does he say? He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. What kind of language is that? Many of us, through the One Desire Fast, we're reading the Psalms of David. You remember David when he was being pursued by Saul, his mortal enemy? What did David say? Lord, deliver me from the hands of my enemy. Please crush them and do all this kind of stuff. Here, Jacob is praying that same prayer. Deliver me. He's treating Esau like the enemy. He's putting the blame on Esau, saying, this is Esau trying to persecute me, trying to harm me. Lord, deliver me. Crush my enemy in that way. Third thing that he does, sending gifts to pacify the attackers. Verses 13 to 20, he treats Esau like this, this like foreign nation that he's got to arrange a treaty with. Like, oh, I wonder if I send all these gifts, then maybe he will be pacified. Maybe he will be, he will be like made softer or whatever, and then he'll somehow accept me and then somehow enter into this agreement and then we'll be friends. You know, this, the, the theme among these three is that Jacob paints himself as the victim. I don't know if you caught that. His prayer sounds really good. Seems like he's going to this, he's going home, he's facing all this stuff that went in the past. But if you, if you miss it, you'll realize that Jacob paints himself as the victim. And he casts the blame upon Esau. And, and what is communicated is more communicated than what Jacob doesn't say. Notice Jacob never says, I'm sorry, yeah, I've sinned. Send a messenger to Esau to say, your brother's coming back. He's messed up so much and he can't do anything. He doesn't deserve to live, but then he entreats your mercy. So please accept him. Please come back so that he may be reunited with his family. Where does he? He never says that. There's not one word of apology. There's not one word of contriteness. There's not one sentiment of humility in Jacob's return. And I'm wondering how many of us, we have the same attitude with our families. How many of us, we have these same attitudes that causes us to get triggered every single time we think about something related to our family. And it doesn't stay within our family. It bleeds into our friendships. It bleeds into our workplaces. You struggle with something? Oh, it's their fault. Oh, it was because my parents did X, Y, and Z. It's because this didn't happen in my workplace. It's because this didn't happen in my friendships. It's their fault. They, They did it. And there's not one admission of, no, man, man, maybe I was wrong. It comes out in our prayer. How do you pray for your family? Do you pray, Lord, humble them. Bring revival in my family so that they may see the light. I've seen the light, but man, they need to see the light. And they're doing all this stuff. Lord, please, they're pagan, pagan family members. Some of you have pre-Christian family members. I wonder if that's how you pray for Or even you have Christian family members. You're like, Lord, they need, they, they need to hear this sermon right now in Jesus' name. How many of us, we pray like that? And you really think that you're God's gift to your family when you're, you're the issue. 
You're the problem. Who was the problem? What caused Jacob to run away in the first place? It was Jacob. It was his deceit, his stealing of the blessings. I, I, uh, I, I think many of us would be amiss to think that we don't do this. And I, I see this in my life all the time, actually. And I think especially when it comes to uh, expectations and communication, I think I've shared this before in a previous message where um, one of the things that Eric and I, we constantly struggle with is like holidays. And this was a holiday, <laughs> Chinese New Year. They were like, what traditions are we going to start for, for a holiday now? But I remember, and it's an ongoing discussion because I realized my family of origin, my background, and hers is so different. For hers, families was such an important part of her family, and she would really look forward to Christmas and all the holidays. And for my family, we would just have dinner together. <laughs> just like, it's like a normal day. And I remember we would constantly clash. And, and uh, it was sometime last year, and it would be like, it was like the second or third time that we had this argument. And it wasn't so much about the holiday as it was about expectations. And I realized like something just triggered in me when we got into this argument again about holidays, or I don't know if it's an argument, we'll just call it a discussion, right? And, and I, we just got into this discussion and I realized I just started feeling something just welling up in me. And I started, I started getting emotional. I was like, why, why is this always happening? And, and we got into this discussion. And it wasn't like that Holy Spirit, like good emotional. It was like the self-pity emotional. And, and it was coming out of this place of like, why do you blame me for having the, the, the family background? Like, why is it my fault? Like, why is, it, why is it my fault that your family had this wonderful family tradition and my family, we didn't really have these traditions that I could call, go to. And then now I'm in this marriage, and then we constantly fight, and we're constantly like, going back to the same thing over and over again. And oh, no, she wasn't blaming me. Don't worry. Like, I, but I felt, I felt blamed. And because I felt blamed, what did I do? I blamed my parents. I blamed my family. I said, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I don't celebrate traditions. It's not my fault that I didn't grow up in this family where we did all this kind of stuff. So why do you put it on me? One thing that we always say in our church is hurt people, hurt people. If you're hurt, then you're going to carry that hurt onto the next generation. Until you take responsibility for your actions and for the decisions that you can make. I don't have to be defined by what my parents and my family's tradition are. I started to realize that. I realize the reason why I'm hurt is because why? Because I'm dwelling in the past. I'm not taking responsibility. I have every right decision, ability to say, I'm not going to do the things that my family did. I'm going to start celebrating traditions because I value this. Because I want my family to be different. I'm not going to be wearing free t-shirts. for the, I, Like, can you imagine? That would be crazy. If you're like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, Erica. I, uh, I have to wear free t-shirts because my family always did. It's just it's crazy, right? It's like, no one would ever say that in your right You're like, that doesn't make any sense. But we do it all the time. We do it all the time. Constantly blaming other people, assigning responsibility to our parents, to our friendships, to the auntie or the uncle, to someone else. They're the reason why I'm triggered. They're the reason why I have this issue. And we never deal with it. Martin Luther King Jr., in his book, Strength of Love, he says this. He says, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive 
is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. I'll just repeat that one sentence. He says, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. I'm wondering if you have forgiven your parents, if you've forgiven your extended family, if you've forgiven those people that have hurt you in your past. Because if you've never forgiven them, that means you can never take responsibility. You will always blame someone else for your issues. And the, the saddest part of that is if you never forgive, then you will never be able to love. And you will repeat the same thing that your parents did to you or your family of origin did to you, to your next generation. And some of us, we have children, we're already doing that because we still, to this day, have not forgiven and not taken responsibility. Matthew 18, 21 to 22, this is Peter and, and Jesus talking. He says, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And then right after this, Jesus proceeds to tell the parable of the unforgiven servant, unforgiving servant. The master forgives servant A, a huge debt. And after the servant A is forgiven this huge debt, he goes to servant B and says, pay back the debts. And it's a small debt. And servant B can't pay back the debt, but then servant A throws servant B into prison. And what happens? Jesus teaches this parable to say, if you cannot forgive others, it is because you have not reconciled. You've not remembered. You have not understood how greatly you have been forgiven yourself. And that is the gospel, isn't it? It's not like we can forgive on our own ability. It's not like we can take responsibility by ourselves. Your family is your family, but the only way that you can take responsibility is if you have been forgiven yourself. You recognize the forgiveness of Jesus Christ who has given us everything. That's the only way we can stop playing the victim. That's the only way we can take responsibility is we realize Jesus took the responsibility for us, for all of our misdeeds, for Jacob's sin, everything that he did. Someone else took the responsibility for us. And we have to know that. Otherwise, we won't be able to move forward. I want to give us some time just to break up in the huddle groups. And I know that this is, there's some, a lot of stuff that we just talked about, some deeper things. And I want to encourage us to look at these questions and just share honestly and just process. And hopefully there are those brothers and sisters in your life group that can really encourage you and pray for you if there's extra time. But I just want to give you these questions. Number one is, what are some patterns of behavior you have that you think might be connected to your family? How is it connected? Trace back. Think back. What are some of the triggers that come up? What are some of the issues that come up? How is it connected to your family of origin? The second question is, why is it so difficult to take responsibility or forgive your family? Why is it so hard? What are the some of the things that really hinder you? So I'll give us, again, another six minutes or so, and then just really minister and encourage one another. Hopefully, there are smaller groups so that we have more time to share with one another, and then we'll come back and finish off. Now, hopefully, uh, you had a good time just of ministering unto one another. I know that probably wasn't enough time 
because you could probably share a lot more about your family and the things that you went through. But I really want to encourage us, and maybe after Sunday celebration, uh, and this is up to discretion of the life group leaders, if you feel like this would be good just to keep uh, those breakout rooms open and just let people share and really pray for one another at the end, I think that will be really powerful. And so just encourage one another that way, or just meet up and find a time to grab coffee to finish sharing your stories. Uh, I, I want to just finish with our last point. Uh, in order to really experience this redemptive work, God redeeming our family as God is redeeming us into his family. We have to know that not only that your family is every family, you have to know those generational patterns. You have to know that your family is your family. It's not anyone else's family. You have to take responsibility. You have to forgive. But lastly, you also have to know that your family is God's family. Your family is God's family. Let's read verses 22 to 32. It says, and this is speaking of Jacob. It says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So we, we look at, you know, now is this, this pivotal, this turning point of the story where all the things that Jacob went through really come to this conclusion. And, and it's really interesting. J Jacob has this mysterious encounter with God. It's this mysterious encounter with this man that he wrestles through daybreak. And when we think about what is the significance of that, Jacob has this deeper issue. He, he, he doesn't, maybe he realizes, maybe he doesn't, but there's this pattern where he realizes his family is every family. And then he, he's starting to exhibit these signs where he's not taking ownership. He's not taking responsibility. He doesn't see his family as his family. But as he has this mysterious encounter with God all by himself, all alone. One of the things that we have to see is what God does. There are a lot of interpretations. There are a lot of things that people are like, oh, why could it? Why was it that God couldn't overpower him? What was Jacob doing? Why was Jacob so strong? But I think that really misses the point of the passage. We see the point of the passage is what God does, who God is, and what God accomplishes. Because at the end of the day, God has the power. He he touches Jacob's hip. Jacob can't do anything. And then God is the one who blesses him. One of the things that we noticed is that God renames, or the man renames Jacob. He renames Jacob from Jacob to Israel. Why is this so important? The name Israel in the original Hebrew it means someone who contends with God. Someone who struggles with God. Why, why would you rename? Well, because literally he wrestled with God. But what is he really, really wrestling with? What, what is he really doing? He's wrestling, he's struggling with all the stuff, all the hurt, all the anger. And why is he doing that? And why is God allowing him to do that? And why is now God giving him this new identity, this new name? 
Well, think about it. Who are the people that we wrestle with the most? Who are the people that we struggle with the most? Is it the stranger that you got triggered by? Is it your boss? Maybe you have an argument with him here and there, but do you go back over and over again? No matter how hurt you've been, no matter how many past things you've been, do you go back to them over and over again? No. Who do you do that with? You do it with your family. And I know many of us, we come from different backgrounds, and some of us, we probably experienced trauma or hurt. Some of us, we might have been disowned, or we've been in different families where we haven't experienced that kind of love or community. But in our, in our ideal, in our ideal world, those are the people that we would always go back to, we will struggle with, we will contend with, we will wrestle. So what is God doing? God is saying, you have struggled, you have wrestled, you have contended with God. And that struggle is what you do with family. And Israel, as you know, doesn't only mean one who struggles with God. God, Israel is the name for the people of God. Israel is the people of God. And it's amazing what God does he, in a moment, in an instant, as Jacob is wrestling, he's doing the very thing that he would do with his family, that he should have done with his father, that he should have done with his brother, that he should have done with his mother. What does he do with? He does it with God. He wrestles with God. In the same way that we have wrestled with our families, with our close relatives, out of hurt, out of brokenness, out of shame, out of disgust, out of all these triggers that bubble up inside, but we do it with God. And as, as we do it with God, that's a symbol of saying we're not part of God's family, and God accepts us, and he identifies us as part of his family. And not only does he wrestle with us, not only does he contend with us, or we contend with him, but he also blesses us. He also blesses us, and I think the deeper meaning of blessing is that Yes, he is Israel who contends with God, but out of that contention, what happens is a blessing, is a provision. It's something that as you work it out with your family, as you go through different things, what happens is that they still provide for you, they still love you, and this is what happens to Jacob. Jacob in Genesis 28, verses 13 to 15. One thing that, if you again, if you read through the book of Genesis earlier on, you'll realize that as Jacob was chased out of his home, fleeing for his life because Esau wanted to kill him. What did he do? He had nothing. He had no inheritance. He had verbal blessing. He was sent out by himself. He was sent to his family, but he didn't know how to get there. It was a dangerous journey all by himself. But what does he do? He meets God. And in chapter 28, verse 13 to 15, NIV, it says, There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until you have done what I have promised you. And that was Jacob's encounter with God at Bethel. And you'll notice it's strangely similar to some of the promises that God gave to whom? To Abraham, his grandfather. Let's read it in Genesis 12, verses 2 to 3 in the New Living Translation. It says, this is God speaking to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That was the same promise to Jacob. 
And then later, Genesis 17, 7, this was another promise to Abraham. It says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Isn't that amazing? The same promise that God gave to Abraham to say, you, you are going to be my people. You're going to be with me. Your descendants will be with me, and I will be your God. You will be my people. That's later on in Exodus. That same promise repeated to Abraham, repeated to Jacob, as a promise that you are going to be my people. You're going to be my family. You're going to be with me, and I'm going to bless you. Why? Not because you merited it, not because you're amazing, not because you did all these right things, because Jacob, you did horrible things, but because you're with my, you're part of my family. I think one of the most wonderful expressions of the gospel is adoption. Because what does an uh, adoptive parent do? They take this child who didn't do anything, maybe at infant birth, and some children who are orphaned, some children who are fostered, who have done maybe crazy things, gotten into huge trouble with the law and who are now up for adoption. What do they do? That parent takes them in their sin, in their brokenness, in their everything, all their stuff. And what do they do? They give them everything. They take them into their home. They take them into their family. They give them everything. They give them themselves. That was Jacob. God took all of his junk. The way that he was deceitful, the way that he hurt his family, the way that he cheated, he stole, he lied. And God gave him what? God gave him blessings. This promise that he gave to Abraham. I think it's incredible because Jacob, he's no longer wearing a free t-shirt. His old clothing, his old name, it's been washed. He is new because he is no longer identified just as Isaac's son or Esau's brother. But now he is Israel and he has been contended with and he has been blessed. He's been adopted into God's family and he would become God's family, God's people for Israel all throughout the wilderness to Exodus and all the way back to the promised land when they will go back there. I think what Charles H. Brent in his book with the God, with God in the world, he just kind of summarizes this. He says, to be able to look into God's face and know with the knowledge of faith that there is nothing between the soul and him is to experience the fullest peace the soul can know. Whatever else pardon may be, it is above all things admission into full fellowship with God. That was what God, uh, Jacob got to experience. He got to wrestle with God. He got to see God face to face. And he was not killed. He was accepted. He was welcomed. He was uh, approved of. He was blessed. And that just wiped away everything else. And it's just like, as Brent says, it is admission into full fellowship with God, admission into the relationship, into the family of God. And that is the promise that we have. That is the hope that we have. We have this admission. We have this hope. We have this acceptance. We have this adoption. God has adopted us as sons and daughters of God. Galatians 4. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we call Him Abba Father. We call Him Daddy. 
call him Father because he is our God, our Father, and everything that we've been through, he's taken upon on himself and he's given us all these blessings back. Ephesians 1, 3-8 in the New Living Translation, it says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then read it in the yellow together, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son, the blood of his son, and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. That's us. That's our story. He took everything upon himself, all of our sins, all of our deceit, all of our mess, all of our triggers, all of our issues, and he gave us the world. And not just the human, the earthly world, he gave us his world, his family, his kingdom, and his hope. And that when we realize that our family is every family, all these generational patterns, and we become more aware of that, and as we realize that our family is our family, we take responsibility that knowing that we are part of God's family, that he's adopted us, and that that is our new identity that gives us the courage to forgive and love and be part of God's redeeming work in our families and all around us. And I'm praying that that would be true of us, that we would be the, the, the work of God in our families, in our spiritual family, in our community here in HMCC of Hong Kong, our church family, as well as the families in the city that we know that are broken, that are hurting. I'm praying that covenant, that we would be families that would shine the light of Christ, that would exemplify families that are of, of the gospel, that could see God's redeeming work here in Hong Kong. And that's why the one thing is God redeems your family as he redeems you into his family. I want to give us just a couple of next steps for us. And I want to reinforce the TEA acronym that we've covered last week as a way for us to really discover what some of these triggers are deep inside. Because it doesn't only apply to your emotions, it also applies to our family circumstances. So the first is A, actions. Identify triggers that come from your family of origin. Your triggers are exemplified through what? Through your actions. Do you, do you lash out? Do you uh, get really angry? Do you criticize people? Do you avoid? Do you hide? What actions do you do that reveals something deeper inside? The second one is emotions. Take responsibility for your shortcomings and forgive your family. Maybe there's bitterness inside. Maybe there's a deep sense of unforgiveness. Maybe there are things that you never realize are still in there that you have to deal with. And then T, thoughts. Declare to your heart and mind that you're part of God's family. You're no longer just part of an earthly family. You have a new family. Through Jesus Christ, you've been adopted into God's family. And as we renew our minds with that truth, that we are no longer just part of this broken family, but we are now part of God's whole and complete family, it will completely change our lives in the way that we see our families. I wanted to just show this video. It's a little bit longer, um, but just to just explain a little bit, there's a, there's a Paralympian named Jessica Long, and she, uh, she's 
she has different just difficulties. Uh, she was born with genetic defect. And she struggled a lot with that and with her family because she was actually offered up for adoption. Um, but really what, it was, what happened was God really worked in her life in such a powerful way that as she received her new identity, she realized who she was in Christ that allowed her not only to overcome one of the most difficult physical pain and trauma that she's gone through, but also the deeper family issues that she held deeper in her heart. And it's a little bit longer. It's about a nine-minute video. But I just wanted us to watch it because I feel like it really communicates God's heart, what God can do in our lives as we learn to trust in him. So let's watch this video together and we'll close out. Well, I, I hope you were just moved and touched by that, just that testimony. I think one of the th amazing things is that, I don't know, it just really communicates the heart of God. It really communicates God's heart for every single person. It doesn't matter where you're from, whether you're orphaned, adopted, you have a family who's been with you your whole life, you've grown up in church. Every single one of us, we have these hurts. We have these longings. We have these desires for approval and acceptance and love and blessing. We try to get it from the world. But all the world gives us back is triggers and everything else. But it's only once we say, God, and when we recognize that God is calling him to be part of his family. God is adopting us into his family to restore us. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be like all fun and games for the rest of your life. But as he's adopting us into his family, he's going to give us a deeper strength, a deeper source of energy and hope that no matter what, what your earthly family does or doesn't do, your friendships, your relationships, that you will have the courage, we will I will have the courage to know and to forgive and to love in a way that no one else in this world can. And I hope that we will experience that, that our lives will be a light post, a lamp, will shine brightly so that all people can see what kind of God that we serve and what kind of family that we all can be adopted into. So what I want us to do is just, we're just sing one song. Right before we sing it, I just want us to pray. I want us to pray for our families. Pray for yourself. Pray for some of the hurts that you have. But pray, I really pray, pray for your family. Whatever your family looks like, Many of you might have hurts, triggers, things that really trip you up. You just cannot work through. But I really believe that as God, His Holy Spirit is with all of us, no matter where we're at, He's going to really restore. He's going to remind us of some truth that is going to totally change our reality. So can we do that? Just, just pray for the next just couple minutes. We'll just sing a song as we worship and close out together. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Mission Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit our website at hongkong.hmcc.net.